0: You are listening to Road to CEO. Nothing but in-depth interviews with executives about their journeys as CEO. I'm your host, Will Marlowe, and I hope you enjoy the show. I'm here today with the great Rand Fishkin, who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Rand is a digital marketing pioneer who founded the iconic company Moz back in 2004, when it was actually called SEO Moz, one of the leading software companies for SEO. I believe it reached about 50 million under his leadership. We're going to find out if I'm right about that. Um, he's become one of the marketing industry gurus around all things SEO and has moved on to found and run a company called Spark Toro, which we're going to hear all about. As always, here on Road to CEO, we're interested in hearing the stories about a CEO's journey. What was the journey like to becoming CEO? What have they learned along the way? Can't wait to dive into this conversation with Rand. Rand, thank you so much for being here. Yeah,
1: my pleasure, Well, thanks for having me.
0: So this is a, so I've known about you since since your days with Moz. I started, I was running a company shortly after you, uh, after you started Moz, I think that would have been in 2004. Is that right?
1: Uh, well, so I, I dropped out of
0: college in 01 and then
1: essentially started the blog that would become the consulting oh. business SEO Moz uh, in 2003. So, yeah, pr- pretty close um, in terms of timing.
0: So one of the reasons I uh, w- thrilled to be talking to you is because you made a comment, and I w- I think it may have been an offhand comment, and I-, I saw it online, and it really inspired me to do something that I'm doing right now. You know, you said so. You you I was familiar with your work as the CEO of a software company, but you made the comment about how different it is to build a services company and you know a consulting company versus a software company, and you you said. I failed building to build a consulting company. And I remember hearing that thinking how interesting it was. This was when I was just new in business. And I just remember thinking how interesting it was just the difference between those two types of businesses. And and I was starting down the path of services and it made me really embrace the difference in what I was doing. So then I, I started really drawing the distinction between services versus software. And it really helped me focus on the things that it really turned me into a CEO that really understood the value of people and a people business because that's how I think of services businesses as people-based businesses rather than product-based businesses in any case I just thought I I just wanted to tell you that because that was it was an interesting way that our our paths intersected a little bit uh, I guess back in the day so so you started that blog that would eventually become a services business and can you just why don't you tell us about that? How did that how did that start at the beginning?
1: Yeah, so I uh, I started the SEO Moz blog originally because um, we were a web design company, right? I was I was building websites for uh, my mom, Jillian, who's my co-founder, uh, for her like small business consulting clients in the in the Seattle area, you know, dentists. Local small banks and credit unions, that kind of stuff. Um, and the the web design business was fine. I I liked it okay, but it did not. It barely paid the bills. We were we were struggling pretty badly. At one point, we were unable to pay our SEO subcontractors, and so it kind of fell on me to do the work because we had promised it to clients and we needed the money desperately. Uh, and so yeah, I um, I dove into SEO. This is probably 2002, insanely frustrating time to try and do SEO, right? The search engines at the time, you know, the market share was pretty spread out. It wasn't just Google like it is today. Um, So all of the search engines were very secretive about how they worked, how they operated, Yeah. Um, the industry was also very secretive. So you did not uh, it was funny, it was sort of pre content marketing era. And so you had this perception among a lot of consultants in search engine optimization that their knowledge was their secret sauce. And if right. they were to share that openly, it would you know, remove the competitive advantage and the unique value that they added. Uh, and so there was a lot of, even at industry conferences, there was a lot of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Those of yeah. you in the audience who know how this works, know how this works. The rest of you, I'm not going to say ah. anything. And um, and I got I got plenty of I don't know what you want to call it hate mail <laughs> um, and a lot of people disliking me because SEO Moz when I started it uh-huh. the, the whole concept was I want to open source how SEO works I want to make it available to anyone and everyone I don't want anyone to have to struggle the way I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and the early blog was crap well like i don't know if you read those posts from like did, yeah. <laughs> four or five, just terrible like nothing useful nothing really good but it's a learning experience right that's right content marketing is a slow sort of burn and you you know i was in my early 20s i'm like gradually learning how to write and how to build an audience and how to make connections and how to uh, uncover topics that people actually care about and so by right. You know, by about 05, 06, like the blog is getting some app, some traction. I start to get some uh, invitations to speak at events. There's very few SEO blogs at the time. Right. Maybe a half dozen that anybody could name. Probably not even, maybe three, you know. Um, and so... The industry is just tiny, and it is viewed with incredible derision and suspicion. Like you know, you remember, but most people today who practice digital marketing think, "Oh, SEO has been a, a staple and a pillar right. of digital marketing for a long time." Of course, it's a you know tried and true practice. It's something that's you know thought of as just part of marketing. Yeah, they don't remember that you know SEO was considered this black hat, spammy, scammy, scummy practice for probably a decade and a half you know from like 95 yeah. to 2010 you just you had all these oh is it you know are you doing white hat seo or black hat seo does white hat seo even exist yeah. all these software engineers would argue that like s no one should actually do seo because that's manipulation and you just have to let google do what they want it was, it was weird times yeah. so so that that is how that blog started and it became a consulting company because the demand for our business shifted right. as, as the blog took off from web design to
0: SEO. So that's interesting. And, and I'm glad you're reminding me about those early days of SEO, because, of course, I do remember that. But it's sometimes it's easy to forget. You okay. know, and it's hard to think of it. I can't think of an example of something today that falls into that category where, you know, something you kind of, you know, is important, but is being just derided by, uh, I I sort
1: of, I I think there's a little bit of that perception around influencers and influencer marketing, but it doesn't, it doesn't have that scam sort of correct perception, you know, and I think it's the career that the most, the highest percent of high schoolers say they want. (laughs) So that's very different from SEO.
0: Yeah. 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 That's right. That wasn't what it was like for SEO. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah, yeah, no. I, I so I'm glad you're you're reminding me of that. Um, uh, I I feel like with um, you know in the early days, you there was also just a lot of confusion around what you know what was going to be productive. There'd be a lot of arguments, and the technical side won out often, just again and again and again, and, and probably because it was you know, there were opportunities to, for the technical side to really shine with minimal effort in a lot of ways, you know, you, yeah. you got the tags, right, you did a few things, you know, technically, and, and maybe that really seemed to, to correspond to great results. I, I would say now, that has really, you know, changed. I mean, there's just, I mean, it, to me, it's all about content driven SEO, mm-hmm. you know, a- almost every site, it, it's rare to find a site that, ha- in my opinion, that has technical, you know, There are technical things you can do to it to really boost its its ranking but i don't know if you disagree with that or
1: yeah so my sense is let's see in the smb world you are absolutely right you know most small and medium businesses most e-commerce shops um most companies out there they're just they're not going to see much of a needle move but if you're talking about you know whatever it is uh the global 5000 yeah. Oh, my God, absolutely, right. That's like, true. They make some technical changes. You know, you Walmart makes one tweak on their site, traffic goes yeah. up seven percent. You know, their quarter re- over quarter results skyrocket. Right. You know, they're ranking better next to Amazon. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Um, you know, poor Tim Resnick, who I think runs their SEO team, um, who used to be at Moz. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's got he's got a lot of <laughs> a lot of heavy <laughs> lifting to do. But, yeah, yeah, you know, you go to. Whatever tiny website selling um, Japanese earthenware clay pots for rice cooking, you know, to to hipster chefs like me. Well, yeah, you know, like yeah, yeah. they're not going to get a ton by by messing around with their title elements and their yeah. um, you know indexation issues and that kind of
0: stuff. So to get back to your early experience with Moz, one of the things you said, which I really like, is how you had a different approach with within the industry, really, from the beginning, you know, and and I think that that's so critical in business to find some differentiation. And so, you know, you you said, you know, your differentiation in one of them in the early days was you were transparent, you wanted to get you wanted to get the information out there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was that really went against the grain, you got some hate mail and, uh, but but it also led to people asking you for consulting services. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the reality was that a lot of the industry insider, you know, other SEO, um, you know, influencers before that was mm-hmm. a word, uh, those folks did not love what SEO SEOmoz was doing. Right, they did not like me blogging about stuff. Uh, Google, right? Matt Cutts was the the head of the web spam team at the right. time, and he really did not like a lot of the stuff that we were publishing um you know i had plenty of messages in my inbox like from him (laughs) saying like cut it out man (laughs) um that kind of stuff so yeah i I would say that transparency um made made some enemies but enemies is the wrong word right because these weren't people who you know they consistently were angry at or hated They, they were just like pissed that our blog revealed this thing that they had been using for sort of for their clients and now yeah. no longer secret sauce because lots of people had read it. And right. um, but it, it, what it did is it built up an audience of people who trusted us. Right. They trusted SEOmoz as a place to learn. They trusted us as a source that wouldn't steer them wrong. Um, they trusted us yeah. to be transparent about what worked and didn't. We, we would own up to our mistakes, you know, when something we'd written last year no longer worked. We'd blog about it. Yeah. So that, um, I, I think that trust building, that's what really created the demand. And that philosophy, which is where the name comes from, too, right? Moz, the, the name we we shared in common with the Mozilla Foundation and DMoz, the Open Directory Project. And at the time, there was Map Moz, which was like an early... Right attempt at, at Google Maps, uh, what Google Maps is today and Chef Moz and all these, you know, different mozes out there. Uh, hmm. And, we, you know, we were um, building a lot of the foundation for a great software marketing engine, yeah. unknowingly.
0: Right. I see. So, okay. So then So uh, let's talk about your progression as CEO. So you were CEO of a consulting company that was kind of growing underneath you. So technically, this is oddly enough, I was the
1: the chief consultant, I was the blogger, but my mom was CEO. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, interesting. She she had been the CEO, I mean, she had been the only employee too since 1981.
0: (laughs) Okay, I see.
1: 1981, probably the oldest SEO business out there, right? Um, But my mom had been uh, CEO of this company. Her, her consultancy um, from 1981, all you know, all the way through. I dropped out of college, started working with her, and she remained CEO until 2007 when we raised our first fundraising round. Right, we had built okay. some this early sort of software, just a set of tools in in I guess late 2006, and then in early 07 we launched it. By the middle of that year, like June, July, it was already doing as much revenue as the consulting business. Like wow. people were just PayPaling us every month i think it was wow. 39 or 29 dollars a month but we had you know hundreds of subscribers all of a sudden because so many people knew us liked us trusted us came to our website sure. um, and there weren't a lot of seo tools that you could subscribe to That's right in fact there was almost none so uh when our you know investors basically came to us and pitched us which is very unusual yeah. and they said rand we want you to be ceo
0: yeah, I um, uh, well, I will say, I as a, a CEO at, at a similar time period, I was a few years later than you when I founded my first company. I had I chased down investors. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I would have loved it to have them knocking on my door. Well, so I,
1: at the time, Will, I absolutely was. You know, I was so excited about it. Right. I was so. I don't know, I felt like, oh my gosh, maybe I'm one of the Silicon Valley style, you know, tech entrepreneur elites. Maybe I can be, you know, the next, there was no Mark Zuckerberg at the time yet. So sure. I was like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I could be one of these Bill Gates type characters. Yeah. Maybe I'm, you know, <laughs> um, whatever it is, not, uh, not, not realizing how terrible the odds are yeah. for venture backed companies. And there, again, you know, the venture scene was a place where the, the information that's available now to an entrepreneur online in seconds—pretty difficult to find, right? Yeah. Difficult to to understand the whole um, venture scene. So all I knew was, really important. Rich people think I'm important and want to put money behind me. It's it's a great day.
0: Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, and I, so so you. Um, there was really no chance that you would turn that down you you saw it as a great thing you were excited and you just kind of said let's go for it
1: yeah i think i was i was so Oof. for 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 several years i had felt like i did not i was not good enough important enough didn't belong in you know tech that i was like scrounging for any type of reputation that my um you know seo being an seo put sort of like this um, almost scarlet letter right mm-hmm. on me versus other tech founding ceos and and that carried through for a number of more years but i felt like this this venture investment if this if this company you know if this yeah. firm puts their money into us that will validate uh, that that I'm a serious entrepreneur that we're a serious business that Moz is like impressive and um so yeah I I really
0: yeah
1: that allure was just un <laughs> um unmissable for me yeah I, I yeah I kind of fell into the hole without without doing all of my research and I will say it, in, even in retrospect I think I would still knowing everything I know today I would still take that first round of investment
0: okay.
1: um, I just I just wouldn't have hopped on the venture train as, as hard as I did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, well, I was going to say, what would, what would you say to, to a, a young entrepreneur today who's in a similar situation?
1: Oh, man, I mean, you you can learn so much by talking to people and yeah. um, and by researching this right and and determine if venture is really the right asset class for you. I, I think it's wrong for ninety nine point nine nine percent of entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, and I would I would caution almost everyone about raising venture for your first company. I think it's a I think venture is great when you're already rich. Yeah. <laughs> like if you've already made your money and you've like you yeah. know what the what the slope sort of looks like. And look, hey, I want to take a high risk, high reward bet. Fine, no problem, right? Go for it. But um, you know, you mentioned like this this is a very weird thing, Will, that a lot of my friends and colleagues, um, you know, probably even yourself, like have considerably more, uh, assets than I do. So it's, and they're always like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You built a company that was doing $50 million in revenue a year. You owned 20 plus percent of it. You still do. What, what am I missing? Like, why, why are you making like what a software engineer makes, you know, in their first few years out of college? I don't get it. That." That doesn't make sense, and it's like, yeah, you, the the mechanics of venture are difficult to understand. Yeah. But basically, until or unless Moz has an exit, which looks decreasingly likely because it's I sort do. of plateaued in terms of revenue, and you know, new leadership has really struggled. Uh, my net worth, technically on paper, is a lot, and actually in the bank, it's <laughs> very <Sorry>, tiny. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, you know, when I left Moz. I started SparkToro the next day, like the okay. day after I left the company. And people are like, oh, well, why didn't you take some time off? you were just so excited about it. Like, no, I, I needed healthcare and money. <laughs> like, I had to get going.
0: <laughs> you know, I would I would say that if somebody's considering venture capital, they should evaluate they need to evaluate what their goals really are. You know, if you want to build a massive company at huge scale with lots of employees probably, then venture capital could help you do that. I mean it's there's no way, I mean, I mean that's really what it is. It is all about, you know, uh, fueling that growth. I mean that's I mean I, there's no secret about that. And, have, and fast, right. And the, fast, the whole idea exactly. is
1: as fast they want you to either fail or become, you know, whatever, Google, Facebook, Amazon as fast as possible. So it's a lot less about the will you get there, right? If you want to build a giant company and you are willing to wait decades to do it, don't do it venture. Yeah. But if you are comfortable with a, hey, in seven years, maybe 10 years, can I get to the scale of whatever, WeWork or Uber or Airbnb, venture is probably your asset class. Just know that you're sort of a, you know, it's it's about a one in 500 to one in a thousand bet.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, the other thing I hate about venture is uh, the the distortion that it really creates where, you know, even hearing what you just said about Moz, you know, you own 20 percent of Moz and it seems increasingly unlikely that they're going to they're going to turn it into a saleable asset. Right. Um, it makes no sense to me that a company with as good a brand as Moz can't get flipped. For a good amount of money. I mean, not you know, not saying that flipping should be the ultimate goal, but it seems very doable. So I'm only I can sure. only guess that the venture backers have so much money that it must. Is it just a, a rounding it's error? A round. a, yeah, yeah. So they, so they just don't care. And I, but I just I can't get my head around how you know, out of the goodness of their heart, they wouldn't just put some you know, some CEO in there who could, you know, and give them the freedom to to do something interesting, you know, sell yeah. it for 50 million or however much and, right. uh, you know, maybe break even for them well, and, I mean, and make it's... money for others.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, the reality is that um, the the logic for them is essentially like, hey, we have, you know, I think Moz's two investors, uh, Ignition Partners and Foundry Group have... Three and five hundred million dollar funds, respectively. Yeah, and their you know their goal is to return three to five times that over a seven to ten year horizon. Right, Moz has already sort of fallen outside of that horizon because of when the investment was made, or it's about to with right. boundary, I guess. And so um, the the story there is essentially it's already kind of in the documents been written off. Yeah, and the funds that put money into. Moz, the, the, you know, the year funds from Foundry Group, at least, you know, they were in the same fund as like Fitbit and, um, oh gosh, SendGrid and a couple other companies that mm-hmm. IPO. Those funds already made their returns. Yeah. So Moz is kind of like for, you know, for Foundry, it's sort of like, that, well, it's kind of hanging around dead yeah. weight. Like, can we make there be fewer board meetings and um, yeah. like just have it take less of our time because it's not, it's just not the rocket ship. So it's not interesting. So the amount of care and attention it gets is however much really the CEO wants or doesn't, you know?
0: Yeah. I, that's the thing about venture that I really can't stand is that, is that whole distortion. I understand the motivation for the rocket ship and the, and I, and I understand all that. And, and, and similarly, I understand why they no longer care about a company (laughs) like Moz, you know, but, but that, it bothers me. You know, I think it's like, I mean, they, they
1: care, but not,
0: um, not enough to to do anything. Yeah.
1: Not enough, not enough to like force something. Right. Right. Um, and it, it's quite odd because the, the the flip side of that is when a fund isn't doing well, and you know the the investors yeah. are like, "Hey, every we need to eke out every penny we possibly can." You can get into a really yeah. nasty scenario where the CEO is like, "Hey, we're doing well, we're we keep That's growing, right. everything's fine," and they're like, "No, you need to sell. We need to get this offloaded right. right away," and that that can go ugly as well, or, you know, leadership can be replaced, that kind of thing. So
0: I don't know which scenario is more common, but I have experienced that, that scenario more. I've Mm -hmm. seen far more, you go, VCs will go into a a good company and then they will set targets that are 20, 50, a hundred percent higher than maybe they should. And that, and then that creates this cycle of selling and and spending too much on advertising and you know doing things that are not sustainable in certain ways. And I think that that is a uh, you know that that that's equally problematic.
1: Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. In fact, um, in in my perspective, right, this is how venture capital in the marketplace warps so many things in sort of digital marketing. You get. A ton of companies that are willing to spend ludicrously unprofitable amounts of customer acquisition cost because growth is the only metric that they care about. Yeah. Right. So, WeWork is a great example about the, of of yeah. this. Right. Essentially, they're willing to lose billions of dollars a year yeah. spending on office space and then renting it out to people like you know you and I, um, and essentially as a, as a loss. Yeah. Right. And, right. and it really is. Hey, we lose money on every customer, but we make it up in volume. And when you right. when you think like, wait, how does that make any sense? The the reason it makes sense is because venture capitalists are are hoping that you look like Amazon, right? Yeah. Twenty years of no profit, of losing money, and then boom! Once you own and control the market and become sort of a near monopoly um, yeah. in the space, then yeah. you know you you sort of jack up your rates and, and you get your efficiencies of scale and you own the market and now uh, everybody's rolling in cash, right? And they're willing to have lots of companies look like, you know, Amazon and and then fail even at, even at spectac- spectacularly um, large scale. WeWork is a great example of this. Uber yeah. is a pretty good example of this and Lyft too, right? Where they, you know, the promise was it was self-driving yeah. car by 2020. Uh, maybe 2030, (laughs) who knows, 2040, it'll be fine.
0: Yeah. Airbnb could be another example in some ways. You know, they've, they've, now that said, I mean, Airbnb makes money though. Yeah.
1: They're, they're practically, um, I, I think they're, they're the, they're the one you point to and go, oh, the model can work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They went through some bumps and, you know, but the model can work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, there's there's a number of other um, players that are like that, right? I think Shopify is a good example of this yeah. do, that has done really well with it. Um, yeah, you know, there's a a good number of mid range venture backed companies that I think have done great. Uh, I I don't know if you saw yesterday, similar Web filed their IPO. Yeah. That looks pretty yeah. solid to me, right? Like impressive growth, really good yeah. customer acquisition costs. They're technically spending more money on you know, sort of marketing and sales and data acquisition and stuff. But you you can see how very quickly after an IPO, they could turn that into quite an impressive story. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some
0: work, some don't. Some do. Uh, Yeah. And I don't want to bash the whole industry. I think that that you do see though, some, a lot of examples of companies kind of die because they, they probably shouldn't have ever gotten into venture capital. And then you see other companies where, you know, they, they, uh, you know th- maybe they could have done well with venture capital but but they don't you know it's still it's still a problem so so that said um going so going back to your experience so how what was it like running moz as the ceo when you maybe during the honeymoon period you got the money in the first round of investment what was that like did you did you like it
1: um i mean i i would say i i loved it it was you know a really exciting adventure it felt like um, I don't know, you know, every year was better than the last, okay. you know, we were, we were hiring, we were growing at this, you know, incredible rate, hundred percent year over year. Um, we managed to maintain profitability, which very few venture companies do, but yeah. you know, our, our um, investors were supportive of that, uh, early investors were supportive of that. Um, and yeah, for, for seven years, you know, as CEO, it, it was kind of this, um, this dream like, wow.
0: Yeah,
1: I was. I mean, the last year was both very it was very stressful. Things were still technically going quite well. So I don't yeah. I, I think it was stressful because I um, was depressed. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was I was um, in a bad place psychologically and mentally and, and emotionally. And um, and I would say that was probably less uh, a result of how the company was actually doing and more a result of just how i was feeling internally but um yeah certainly for the the six years before that i i was loving almost every minute of it up to about maybe 75-ish people um i really really you know i loved my team i i felt like we had this um very special relationship with each other and with um our customers and community yeah um yeah, it, it was cool. It was it was an exciting yeah. adventure, especially as like a young kid. Right. I'm, I basically right. started the company, started the blog in my when I was twenty one, twenty two. Wow. And then, you know, was was CEO from twenty seven to thirty five, something like that. Right. Yeah. And then uh, stepped down and um, I, as I was having that bout of depression, I talked to my investors stepped down, um, promoted my longtime chief operating officer to CEO, I remained chairman of the board. And then, um, yeah, then, then things got real, it's real nasty over the next few years, you know, then the, um, growth slowed down over the next couple of years, there's a lot more conflict um, yeah. at the leadership level, uh, the, you know, uh, she and I disagreed about a lot of things, and I, the CEO, the new CEO, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that just, it just, it, led to layoffs. Um, mm-hmm. I think Moz did a big round of layoffs in 2016, 16 or 17, something like that. Um, yeah. And then eventually, you know, I negotiated my departure, which, um, which was like a year long legal battle, <laughs> just terrible. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, I uh, so I, I wrote a book, you know, about kind of the whole thing, which which I think you've yeah. seen, Lock the founder, and uh, that was that was published like right after I I left. But yeah, even that was kind of a a fight in a story, right? The the Moz um, oh. leadership and board knew that I was writing this book, and they were like, "Well, we're really nervous about what's going to be in there and what it's going to do to the company, and yada yada, and are you going to throw us under the bus?" and um. There was a, you know, part of their legal request for me departing, and and my severance was like, we want to see a copy of the book before it comes out and be able to edit. And of course, you know, Penguin Random House, my publisher, was like, "Fuck no," <laughs> <laughs> they they didn't use that language, but yeah. you know, that um, but uh, yeah, so that eventually, wow. you know, lawyers got involved, and just just a <laughs> whole terrible. <laughs> Fart noise is about the best way I can describe the, the final year there. I
0: I understand. I understand. So um, so I want to maybe dig into um, kind of what what you think changed in terms. Of, so so the person you promoted to yeah. CEO, is that the one who stayed CEO after you left? Yeah, role? yeah, she's or still there.
1: She's uh, Sarah's still a still CEO. Yeah.
0: What was she one of your people or was she one of the VCs people?
1: Oh, oh uh, no! So, so Sarah and I had been um, friends through a mutual friend, I think, at the end of college, and then yeah. she joined early SEO Moz. Well, sorry, I, I guess okay. late SEO Moz, but early Moz. Um, right after our fund, our first funding round. So, right after I became CEO, yeah, um, she joined, and then we we promoted her to chief operating officer. She had been a lawyer before that. I see. In, um, Family law, contract law, that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, so not interesting, you know, not really a yeah. direct connection. But um, regardless, right? I I liked her a lot. She's super talented. She was she was an amazing COO, a- absolutely amazing. Just did a fantastic job. Um, and yeah, we I, I I could not speak highly re- enough of her um, as as a partner in the business and no. part of the leadership team. Just excellent. So yeah. I, I felt really good about the decision to make her CEO. And then, yeah, I think, yeah, uh, who knows, right? Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to say um, what, what change or, or dynamic. Yeah. I'm sure if you were interviewing her, she, you know, maybe if she were being her honest self, she would say she felt like decisions that I made were responsible for the slowdown in growth and the and the, um, um, you know, the challenging situation that she was put in, and maybe she didn't feel supported, and right. I, I don't know, right? Like that. Those are. Um, I, I always try and yeah. be charitable when I think about sure. it, especially because um, Will, Sarah, and I were like best friends for a decade too. Wow. She she was the officiant at Geraldine and my wedding. Wow. Um, you know we. We went on vacation with uh, her and her husband and and their son, um, and we, yeah, did all sorts of stuff to get like, yeah, we babysat her kid, and I mean, just wow. you know, really close.
0: Like, so it, it wasn't. wasn't so it obviously wasn't a personal problem, a personal dynamic that that was the problem, really, at least initially. Yeah. Um, the so okay, so that leads me to the, the other point you made. So sales were great growth was great, and then growth slowed. Yeah. Strate- so, okay, so then obviously at some point there was a strategic decision that was wrong. <laughs> like that's... And I mean, that was mine, right? That was that okay, was so
1: my strategic decision that okay. was, it was wrong. Absolutely. What was so that? In, in In 2012, we raised this big round from Foundry Group, I think $18 yeah. million. Uh, so it, we'd only raised 1.1 million before that, right? So, that, the, so this big, was the second. This was yeah, a few, so big yeah. second round in 2012 yeah. after no funding since t- 2007. With that round, my um, my thought was, oh well, you know, um, the SEO world, you know, the SEO market potentially isn't big enough to build an, an IPOable company. <laughs> Proved wrong this year by SEMrush, right? <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But
1: um, but you know, I was concerned about that, right? And I think most of the most of the VCs I was pitching. Yeah, I mean, this is another bias that I really dislike. I love the SEO world. I thought it was big enough. The venture capitalists I was pitching disagreed. They were like, SEO is a tiny niche. You'll never build a $100 million company in that field. Like it's impressive you got it to 30 or whatever it is, but it's just not gonna gonna get there. So what what are you gonna do, right? And so I put together this like pitch that was, hey, Moz is gonna become you know, a a market. We're going to use our market leadership in SEO to enter other digital marketing practices, um, uh, online PR, and and um, social media marketing, and content marketing, and all these places. And so we're going to build products that sort of service as this is this, this suite where you can do all these things. Yeah, kind of like HubSpot did with like yeah. CRM, website analytics. That's right. right. That was a little bit the pitch there, and um, that obviously super strategically wrong, especially because, tactically speaking, we did not have the engineering leadership talent tactics yeah. to be able to execute on that. And so once we started trying to build you know, four different products for four different markets, we diluted our brand, we turned off a bunch of customers who just yeah. wanted SEO software and drove them to competitors, SEM, Russian, Trust yeah. primarily, but plenty of others too. And um, and you can really see it, right? So, like in 2014, um, when you, you know whoever it was Search Engine Land or SEO Roundtable, somebody like would run a survey: what what which SEO tool are you using? And it was like 50 percent plus Moz, and then everybody else below that. Yeah. Fast forward another four years. <laughs> It flips, right? Yeah. Moz is like twenty percent, SEM Rush is like forty percent, is like thirty percent, and you know, yeah. Moz is increasingly a smaller and smaller share of a of a growing market. Like we did it at the worst possible time because SEO never yeah. grew faster than it did from probably twenty fifteen to today. Like okay. the field has just skyrocketed completely, and, um, and our timing was too early. You know, like we we had our Focus on that market um, and then expand to others. Just at the at the wrong time.
0: So when the when the VCs were saying that there's no way you could get to a hundred, growth was still good, right? Oh, 100 percent year over year. <laughs> as the uh, uh, right there, that's it's it's hilarious. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. In, in, in I mean, because I mean, so as somebody who was outside, and I wasn't in the industry, I was in another industry at the time. But but as somebody on the outside of Moz, um, hearing about that. What it sounds like you're saying is growth was great and it was easy. I mean, I've I, I've been a part of companies that struggled to grow, yeah. and you sort of take for granted sometimes when you're with a company that's easy growing easily. And so it's funny to me, like anytime if, if any company that easily gets to fifty million, there's a hundred million there. Like that's a, that's a there's a hundred million dollar market. Like there's no you don't easily get to fifty. You know, I, I, even, I there
1: are a lot of people on Sandhill Road that I would like you to have conversations I, with <laughs> they, they will well, strongly disagree.
0: Yeah, I don't think they would. Yeah, they're, they're not going to listen to me, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> or me.
0: Yeah. Um So no, I mean,
1: once I wrote Lost and Founder, right, essentially, you know, all these people were like, you, you're going to burn your bridges with every venture capitalist. I said, like, yes, <laughs> that is the idea.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure, though, they have very short memories. So, you know, they, that, that's the other thing that, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that this is also a fact. Yeah, they, they you know, you you know, it's it feels like you burn your bridges, but they you know, you could get meetings with any one of them.
1: I, yeah. I, I probably could. You're right. I yeah. have gotten some outreach, you know, uh, out. MarkToro, right. And I, I reply with basically a, hey, if you're looking to use SparkToro for your portfolio companies, <laughs> yeah. like, great. I'm happy to be a resource, happy to help. If you would, are thinking maybe Sparktoro would like funding, here is this blog post and go f yourself. I, I would, <laughs> not that mean, but you know,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should be though. Um, I, I would say though that that the a lot of I think everybody has had the idea of of talking to a VC and then getting them to help sell to their portfolio companies. I would say that almost never works. <laughs> you know, it, it works sometimes.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've had there, and yeah. you know we've had a few people who've been like, oh yeah, we. Like we internally, I think the Andreessen Horowitz team like signed up for Mm -hmm. an account on SparkToro and they use it for their portfolio companies and I think to invest in markets and stuff. And it was like, great, fine. You know, you're not my favorite people. I don't love the philosophy that you present, but I do love early stage companies and helping them. And I I want more new companies to succeed. So if you're gonna help those people do that, wonderful, right? Like Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that application. And you know maybe you'll improve your economic politics in yeah. the future.
0: Yeah. So okay. So I, I want to jump back again to your early career for a moment. So you started with a consulting company. Now your, your mom was the CEO. Was you know obviously you know obviously there was a, a different dynamic. It turned into a software company. And how quickly did you realize that you didn't want to be CEO of a services company? Gosh.
1: I, so I mean. I think it was a little less i don't want to be ceo of a services company and more we accidentally stumbled into this incredible business right right so what had happened was we had this services company i liked it it was doing okay it wasn't growing very fast it was you know yeah. profitable enough that we were like making some money but i think i was i think i was making thirty six thousand dollars a year right so like you know very yeah. very minimal salary granted that you know that maybe that's the equivalent of forty-five today or something, but um, it was it was challenging, um, very challenging to scale, especially because we had built a little bit of a brand of personality, like with me as the yeah. face of the blog and the company. Right. And so, as a services business, this is really bad because every client, of course, wants to work with me, not yeah. the team that I'm building. Um, so that was, that was problematic. Uh, but yeah, when we launched that software, we had, we had no idea. Like the reason I wanted to open source the tools for free, Yeah. right? And Matt, our developer was like, our servers will get overwhelmed. We can't afford it. Like, there's no way. Sorry. And I was like, well, what if we put up a PayPal paywall and he's like, all right let me see how easy it is. And he's like, okay, this is pretty easy. I'll, I'll just set that up. He built it like over the holidays, over December holidays. And then we launched it in February and it was like, like rocket ship up. And we we kind of looked at each other like, Whoa, Holy crap. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, Matt, before the, um, before we raised the investment, he was like, hey, I don't really want to work at a software company. I don't want to be here, so hmm. he left. Okay. Uh, but, you know, then we, we um, kind of grew the team engineering-wise and doubled and, uh, down on it. But it was, so it was a little less like, I don't want to run a consulting business and more, yeah. holy crap, this software as a service, which, you know, I didn't even know the acronym at the time. Right. is just incredible. Like it just keeps growing on its own. And the growth mechanism was, if I blog more, <laughs> we get more customers. So like, oh, I can do that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, so okay. So that's interesting. The, um, um, it, w- where I was going to head with that was, you know, uh, there are many software companies that do have a professional services practice oh. and they kind of divide them generally speaking, and have different people running different things to try so to- we
1: did, we did too. Okay. And in retrospect, I, um, for many years at Moz, I actually really regretted getting rid of it. This was another decision driven by venture. I see. Uh, so essentially, you know, I went down to Silicon Valley and I was pitching for like in 2009, 10, 11, into 12. You know, I was going maybe, I don't know, six, seven, eight trips a year. You know, going, pitching, meeting people, getting intros, all that kind of stuff. Um, exhausting work. But, um, and very, oh my God, what a, what a freaking boys club it is down there. Like, it is. Yeah. It's pretty, it was very messed up at the time. I hope it's gotten better, but I don't think it has. I don't think it has. I can't, I can't even, I cannot even fathom what it would have been like if I were a woman, like a single woman going down there and trying to do the type of networking yeah. That, yeah, it was, it was ridiculous anyway. So doing a bunch of that, all the feedback was, well, you sort of look more like a services business to us. And I was like, services is like, a, we're doing a million dollars of services revenue and 4 million of software. Like we're obviously a software business. And they were like, eh, are you, I don't know. You seem like a services business. We're not going to yeah. invest. So I think 2010, Twenty ten, we just dropped, I was like, We're done. We're out. i are dropping services completely. Uh we're gonna kill that whole business unit. We're gonna take the million dollar hit. I don't care. Like we're out because I need I need the venture capitalists to believe in us. Yeah. Oh man. Will why? Why did I care so much about them and so little about my customers?
0: Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I so, hear you. I hear you. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I, I can relate to that a lot with my first business. I thought that it was either, you know, succeed with other people's money or or fail. That's yeah. what I thought. And the fact of the matter is, is that's the furthest thing from the truth. You, you can, you know, the, the best way to succeed is to keep control of the company and generate revenue by making people really happy in some way. <laughs> so. Yes.
1: Oh my God. And, and I mean, I think about all of the time and energy and effort that I put into building relationships with and delighting and trying to convince these investors and potential investors almost exclusively, right? You know, hundreds of potential investors that turned into two actual investors and one of them I already had, uh, That right? That they should yeah. back me. What if I had taken... 60%, 50%, 20% of that effort and put it into customer development yeah. and like making our product better and building relationships with, I don't know, software engineers and product people and designers and developers who could have made our company better. Yeah. Oh, it's it's
0: just,
1: oh it crushes me. And yeah. you know what, this is the beautiful thing about SparkToro, 99.9% of the effort that I put into the company is either improving the product or, or improving my relationships and reach with customers. Yeah. I, I freaking love that. I love the freedom, the freedom to concentrate on the people who really matter to the business. That is such a beautiful gift that you get when you don't raise um, institutional capital. And SparkToro has raised money. We raised 1.3 million. We technically raised more than Moz raised in his first round, See? but we raised them all from people like you. Yeah. Like it was all, you know, owners of agencies and, and consultants and like people who said, oh, I really want that product to exist. This sounds super exciting. I believe in you, Rand. Like, here, I'll put in 25K, 50K, that kind of thing. I,
0: I, I would love it if I was included on the next round of uh, of <laughs> over, uh Capital. <laughs> I,
1: I have bad news. I mean, good news and bad news. The good news is I think we'll never need to raise again.
0: I'm pretty sure you won't.
1: Yeah. But, uh, the you know, the and, and the... The bad news is, um, I, I think, even if there were some opportunity there, like Casey and I are very strongly biased against. Uh, what's the Reed Hoffman book? Blitz scaling.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right?
1: sure. like if, the, if if there was an anti blitz scaling, like a slug scaling.
0: <laughs> yeah, that should be your next book.
1: Yeah, I I freaking love the. Slow and steady and profitable yeah. and build what customers want and focus on delighting them, and yeah, you know, build a great team of people around you. Slow and steady. That's
0: what's what the, what's the ideal size in terms of employees for you? How how many for you to be actually CEO?
1: Hmm. Uh, I don't. So Casey and I sort of agreed. <laughs> I, I'm not sure technically in writing, but I have it in my notebook, you know, from our from our first early meetings that we he never wanted a company bigger than 20 people. And I never wanted one bigger than 50.
0: So somewhere around there. I would have guessed. Yeah, that's what I would. And you liked being CEO up until about 75 employees at Moz. You were having fun.
1: Yeah, it really, you know, it felt like um, that sort of special environment of everybody knows everybody. There's a lot of um, social cohesion and and kindness and forgiveness and benefit of the doubt giving. And, yeah. you know, it's not, oh, engineering screwed this up again. Yeah. It's, oh, let me go talk to Ben and Nick and see if they can fix this. Yeah. Right. So, and there's such a huge difference between those two things when it's like, marketing views product in one way, finance views customer service in one way, as opposed to, you know, whatever, Rebecca thinks about Tara in this way.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any advice that you like to give? As a, Do you have a standard piece of advice that you like to give to, to new CEOs or, or to just people who are growing in executive leadership?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, uh, there's a, there's a ton right like every chapter in lost and founders is kind of a different yeah. big lesson a- along the along this route but um i, I think a, a huge portion of our journeys as founders and entrepreneurs is driven by the external culture around us right it's it's which you know who are my entrepreneurial heroes and why do i idolize them and what do I think will make me, will fill sort of the hole in my chest that's been been left by my upbringing and my culture and the society around me and the the press that I read and the content that I read and the um, people that I follow. And um, I, I think whatever you want to call it, like hustle culture in entrepreneurship has biased a ton of people to believe things about why they need to be successful in very particular ways. And if you can break those chains, if you can think for yourself about why you want what you want and what you truly want and don't, um, and you don't let anyone else dictate that 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 becomes a superpower. Yeah. Right. Then you can truly say, oh, I want to raise venture capital because I like high risk, high reward. I am happy to be one of the 499 companies that doesn't succeed that sort of has a terrible time over the next seven to 10 years. That doesn't bother me. And if I'm one of the ones that's great too. Yeah. Okay. Now, now, you know, right. That, that, that this is for you and you can, you can go do it. And if, um, that sort of model isn't for you, you can go figure out what is. And I think the beautiful thing about, uh, the world today is there's so much capital floating out there in so many different kinds of ways that you can, you know, uh, uh, a buddy of mine, Kane Jameson, just just raised from Earnest Capital, right, which has this really unique uh, model that's, that's great for certain types of, um, I don't want to say slug scaling, because I think they're growing faster than that, but you know, like the inverse of um, blitz scaling. And there's just a lot of opportunity out there to do different kinds of things. I don't, I don't think you need to be constrained
0: by what's come before. What does it mean to have open source documents for your business?
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I I think I I might've mentioned to you, Will, right? That we open sourced our investment fundraising docs for SparkToro. So the incorporation papers that we used to structure and get everyone's signatures. Yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And what I mean by open sourcing that is we just paid our lawyers for a few extra hours of time to remove all the names and uh-huh. um, you know include open fields that you could plug in yourself as as an entrepreneur uh, or a founding team yeah. and yeah. essentially save yourself the hassle of custom building your own structure if you like Spark Toro's fundraising structure. I you see. can change the numbers to be whatever you want. Here's the pre-money valuation for us. I see. Here's the pre-money valuation for some other company. Um, you can change how many people are investing and how much they're investing yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can change obviously your name and address, yeah. blah 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 blah. But um, the short version, which I think I think it's three or four different companies have used modified versions of our investment docs now. So they basically downloaded those open source docs. Use them to pitch and fundraise for yeah. their own businesses, and um, the Tiny Seed Investment Fund also uses a modified version of SparkToro's funding structure for all the investments they make too.
0: I see. Very interesting. So, and why was that important to you? Did you is it just consistent with your philosophy of transparency and and being generous with content?
1: Not, um, not so much that it's a. It's a little more philosophically aligned with the, the one of the reasons that I started SparkToro the way I did, which is that I okay. have this fundamental hope and belief that um, a venture capital backed business that and the classic VC sort of angel funding route um, is fundamentally broken for most businesses. It's not the right structure for most companies. Many companies that. Need to raise money, use that process, and then fall into the trap of believing that they have to um, sort of, you know, either be the rocket ship that reaches a billion dollars or die trying. And um, I don't, I don't believe that that is the only way to make money as an entrepreneur, Um, and I don't believe it's the only way to make money as an investor. And so SparkToro is an attempt. To try and get people to think differently about that, um, and that's where the the philosoph- philosophical idea of like let's open source our docs so other people who might be inspired by us can follow in our footsteps, and and do this sort of creative fundraising.
0: I love that. Yeah, I think that that's awesome, and that that kind of gets to what we were talking about earlier about the, um, you know, just the problems with VC, the VC model. Yeah,
1: man. I mean, look, I, I, I was reading sort of a you know, an investment philosophy from a, a SparkToro investor, one of SparkToro's investors and a good friend of mine, Dharma Shah, one of the most successful angel investors out there. Um, and by successful, I mean purely financially successful. I, I don't know if he's yeah. actually accomplished the things that he wants to accomplish by angel investing, but I, I assume money is one of them. Um, but, you know, he was he was pointing out like, hey, you, if you want to be successful as an angel investor, you have to only invest in companies that can be a billion dollars or more because you're gonna have one or two 20x returns to make up for the 40 or 50 failures that you put in. You you know, you need to put you need to uh, fund a huge number of companies, fund them quickly, jump in right away. It's like, hmm. Yeah, I don't like that philosophy at all. You know, he was pointing out like if you think a company is going to be long-term profitable, successful, have a very low likelihood yeah. of dying and failing you shouldn't put your money into them. Yeah. Breaks my heart, man. Like what a what a terrible way to do capitalism. Right? Yeah. The the only way you can be successful as an angel investor will uh, apparently is to basically be like, how can I personally contribute to income inequality and making sure that for every 100 people who try, only one succeeds. Yeah. You can you can make that the demo reel for this uh,
0: <laughs> the promo <laughs> for our conversation, Rand. I like that. I, <laughs> it's so true, though. It is. It is. I mean, I, I've heard different versions of that. You know, from uh, I mean, I remember when I first started raising capital for my first, you know, for my for software company. You know, it was you know the whole question was well should you even be asking for capital? Can you get to a billion? Can you do, you know, are you, you know, if not, you know, why are you, why are you here? And, you know, I mean, it's like, just right. You know, that was kind of like, you know, just sort of question number one. And it gets you thinking in the wrong way. You know, it got me thinking in the wrong way about, oh, okay, well, let me, let me, let me think through my numbers. Cause I really, I ought to be able to be a billion dollar company. And, you know, when, in you know, when, you know, in reality, there's a lot of, options there's a lot of ways to to grow and and fund and all of that
1: i mean the i think the wildest part is my my perception is you have a lot more of an opportunity to become one of those unicorns Mm -hmm. if you survive for a long time and thrive and keep growing than if you aim to be a rocket ship or die trying yes right i I agree i think I think the Canva's and MailChimps and Survey Monkeys and you know businesses that take a long time to mature into you know what they can potentially become are actually really exciting and interesting. And I think I think that might yeah. be the future. Meaning, I want to know, uh, for example, Will maybe you want to know what um, chemical engineers in the UK. Uh, listen to, which podcasts are popular with them, or you're yeah. curious about um, what architects in Los Angeles, uh, which YouTube channels they subscribe to, or you want to know what words and phrases VPs of sales also use in their bios mm-hmm. or what uh, social accounts they follow. So you can go, whatever, advertise to them or you okay. can uh, do pitching and outreach or you want to see what um, what press sources are Uh, followed by fiction authors, so that you can promote your new uh, material to them. If if you have a describable online audience that you want to learn more about, you want to know what they watch, listen to, read, follow, talk about, share how they describe themselves, their demographics, SparkToro can tell you a a lot about those people. And it, it is not Uh, It doesn't require, you know, a six month long, design a survey, find an audience, figure out how to incent them to fill out the survey, account for all this bias stuff, right? Like this is passively collected data uh, that people have put on their public social profiles uh, on 10 different social networks, you know, whatever, Facebook, LinkedIn, Reddit, YouTube, Quora, Medium, GitHub, Twitter, Instagram. and, And... it is aggregated data, so it's anonymized. There's no personally identifiable information. We won't tell okay. you who those chemical engineers or architects are. But f- from that data, you can do incredible things. Like incred- Just, you know, simplest thing you can do is, hey, my audience listens to this podcast. Maybe I should be a guest on that podcast. Maybe yeah. I should sponsor that podcast. Maybe I should
0: do some co-marketing with the host. Okay, so so um, I'm going to throw out a a client name here because this is I think this will be a good way to describe how SparkToro might work with with an otherwise challenging client. So one of my favorite clients is a company called Shippo. They do I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They do shipping software for all types of businesses and. you know, so if you're an e-commerce website and you're shipping stuff all around, you need to print shipping labels. You need to, you know, they can save you tons of money on shipping and all that. And um, uh, I've always thought that they would be tricky to do PR for because who is a thought leader in shipping? Like, who's like, what do you like, you know, like like what do you you know, what would Spark Toro do if you were to if the PR person was was to was to you i'm assuming the pr i'm assuming your clients for for spartoro might be say like a head of public relations something like that somebody in charge of that
1: possibly yeah sometimes we we have i would say what's what's wild about SparkToro is it is used by an incredibly broad set of people so there's no one audience that accounts for 15% of SparkToro's customers, right? Okay. So it'll be like, oh, I do market research. Well, I'm the, I do digital PR. Well, I'm a, um, you know, whatever, a founder of, a, of a, a company. I'm a marketing agency. I We do w- w- whatever it is. Um, but yes, PR is certainly one thing that you could do. And if you were thinking about it for Shippo in particular, I think one of the things I would probably do is I would look for e-commerce and drop shipping entrepreneurs. Okay. Right? People who you know, whatever they, um, they follow accounts in e-commerce startup world. They follow, okay. um, people who, uh, or, or, or publications for, you know, drop shipping businesses and for, um, consumer product group okay. businesses that are, that are in early stage. And I would go, my, my audience follows the social account, you know, like somebody, um, In that world that I know well is um, Eric from Beardbrand. Oh yeah, Eric Bandholz. Eric Bandholz. Yeah. So like he's followed. He's sort of you know popular with a lot of these um, types of entrepreneurs who have started businesses like that. And so you might be like, oh yeah, let's see who follows Eric. And okay, they also follow you know these sources of influence. Ah, this group looks great. Oh, they use the hashtag. You know whatever. could, I, I don't. This is made up, but like, yeah. they use the hashtag like shipping problems. Okay, boom. We're gonna look at people who use the hash this hashtag in the last hundred twenty days, and ah, I see that I can reach them yeah. through these podcasts, these YouTube, channels, these press sources, these social accounts, these websites. Boom, 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 boom. Right now, you got your your essentially marketing strategy there because instead so, of trying to figure out like where can I reach my target audience. SparkToro can just tell you, oh, 17% of people who are e-commerce uh, store founders in the United
0: States follow this publication. I see. So it's really about mapping networks of influence. Yeah. I mean, if we were talking, if we were having this conversation seven or eight years ago, I would yeah. say SparkToro helps
1: you with influencer marketing. Yeah. But influencer has come yeah. to mean half naked person with six six pack abs on Instagram. Fair and enough. So we don't we don't really do that, right? Yeah. Most most influencers, right? The what that word means now, don't influence a specific audience. Right. They are not influential among e-commerce entrepreneurs. Right. They simply are followed by a broad swath of people who enjoy their whatever sculpted abs or or, or whatever it is, the swimsuit they're wearing, or you know, that kind of crap. Yeah. And, and to my mind, like that's, look, for like 1% of big, broad brands in right. CPG world, like, yes, maybe influencer marketing is kind of the new, let me advertise on TV. But yeah, for the rest of us, you know, like uh, what I, I don't care about being in front of a million people. I don't care about having tons of impressions. I want to have my brand reach exactly this target audience, right? If I'm Shippo, I want to reach e-commerce founders and entrepreneurs and chief operation officers at these startup and challenger brands. Yeah. That's who I care about. Nobody else really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Well, I really appreciate that that input on, on SparkToro um, and we talked a little bit last time we spoke about kind of you know you're not looking for for more funding you're not you know you're what are what are your foreseeable what are your plans for the next uh, six to twelve months?
1: Yeah, I mean we have a bunch of um, requested feature development work and okay. uh, languages a couple of languages that we want to expand to. We're currently very much English language only um, and. A lot of folks, especially from Spanish-speaking and, uh, and German-speaking countries, um, have asked us about using SparkToro. So those are the first two languages that we're going to try and have coverage on. Um, and then we have also gotten a lot of interest in people who say, rather than I want to search for an audience, see their sources of influence. I want to track an audience like i'm really interested in all the people who follow our social accounts maybe i'm like show me all the people who follow our social accounts on whatever twitter and linkedin and facebook wherever they're big tell me what else they start following i want to see if there's like some new source of influence that's starting to rise in importance Tell me if there's a hashtag that they're yeah. starting to use that's like kind of taking off. Tell me yeah. if there's words and phrases that they are starting to discuss on social that I should be creating content about, that we should be programming yeah. our next event for, that we should do a webinar about. Uh, tell me if there's a YouTube channel that's taking off. Maybe we should advertise against that YouTube channel in our Google Ads account. Yeah. So all that kind of stuff um, is currently, if you wanted to do it, you'd have to like log into SparkToro every week and perform the same search and compare the different. We don't want to like, let's just show you that over time. Here's all the new stuff, that sort of data. I think that will probably end up being a huge part of the um, platform in the next six to 12 months. I see.
0: I see. Well, what I like about it is, I mean, that sounds very actionable, very action oriented. I know as, you know, as a CEO myself, you know, a lot of well when i first started hiring people you know and for this company i did not take any funding so it was all you know funded out of revenue and um initially it was all about how to how do you how do you keep people productive and busy and and happy and like how do you how do you get how do you make sure that they are empowered to do things that are really useful and um and i think finding certain tools it sounds like SparkToro would fall into this category, you know, really go, it really taught me the importance of a tool because, you know, it, you know, a tool really can shape people's behavior in, in large ways. You know, if if somebody has a tool for link building, they're going to do link building, like they're going to do more of that. You know, if somebody has a tool for, you know, for, um, you know, uh, putting out press releases, they're probably going to put out press releases, you know, so like really good quality tools that are, that are, I, I, you know, I think the best tools are ones that are really, you know, they, they give people, um, you know, they, they really amplify, you know, their intelligence, they amplify their, um, you know, you know, the actions that they would be taking otherwise, you know, that, that's really what, what I like rather than say like a narrow tool, like, like for instance, like a press release distribution service, like that's, you know,
1: there's not much to it. I I feel like a a lot of tools in, in PR world in particular, I had a, a great call this morning with someone who's kind of deep in PR world. And a lot of those tools are somewhat about sort of showing off your um, ability to make connections and where someone's getting mentioned and yeah, talk about, as true. opposed to... You know, it's, it's kind of that broad brushstroke approach. Like, hey, we'll tell you about these five hundred mentions that you got from you know the last six months of the, our campaign of working together and and trying to get the you know press outlets to cover you. And I kind of have this like, okay, if I'm going back to your example, if I'm Shippo, and the New York Times writes an article about you know whatever um, shipping and the rise yeah. of of e-commerce firms, that's not a bad thing. Like, that's probably nice to have. I'd show my grandparents. I'd be like, hey, we're in the New York Times. Are a whole bunch of um, entrepreneurs and, and potential customers who need our product gonna read that piece?
0: No, Yeah. like probably not. It's too,
1: too broad a publication. Yeah, Any given story that. in the New York Times just doesn't get that much play, especially something so niche. Like that's not, that's not helpful. And yet, you know, your grandparents are not gonna be impressed that like, you know, um, whatever e-commerce tips dot com, you know, or dot info wrote about you. But your customers are like, oh, hey, that's great advice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got the email newsletter in my inbox and I'm like, oh, man, I sh- shippo with two P's. OK, I'm checking them out. Yeah. So look, it's just it's just a matter of, um, I think, changing, changing the whole Thought process behind why am I trying to go out and do marketing on other people's platforms? And, right. and why am I trying to build influence in these places? And the answer is because you think that there's audience affinity and value to your brand, as opposed to, well, I've heard of them and I wanna, you know, cut out the newspaper and send it to my folks.
0: <laughs> yeah. Two different philosophies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've got one more question. I've got a really tough one for you. So, um, so you, uh, so you talked, you were very open about some mistakes you made with Moz and, you know, maybe a strategic mistake. And I can't remember what year it was um, Hmm. because for people who are listening, maybe they don't realize that there's been about a week since we taped the first hour. And (laughs) so it it um, took that long just to get our cameras working. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So, um, what are you doing now to try to prevent yourself from making a similar type of strategic error as the CEO of SparkToro That you, you know, you know, how are you trying to learn from from some of the mistakes that you that you're that you've clearly been introspective about?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, I think that prob- probably the biggest thing is structuring the business in a way that's very forgiving. Uh Right. So let's say that over the next six to 12 months, SparkToro doesn't grow at all. Like it just sort of, you know, it takes us a really long time to figure out our next steps and um, we're we're profitable now. But maybe, you know, maybe we're adding a few customers every month, but we're also, you know, a few people are canceling every month because they don't need it. And so the business is kind of just plateaued. The good news is the way we've structured it, that is okay. That is absolutely fine. If we need time to figure out our strategy, to figure out the tactics that work, to wait for, you know, a market to recover, who knows, maybe, you know, maybe there's some terrible thing. God, I hope not. We've had way too much terrible things the last couple of years. But, you know, we can be patient. We can wait it out. And I think that is, um, that's the biggest sort of structural change that we've made. We don't need to be on that. You know, VC ramp where a year when growth slows from 100% year over year to whatever it was 60% year over year, which I think happened to me my, my, my last year as CEO yeah. of Moz. I, I don't have to sweat that. Like that. Yeah. Casey and I will still be high fiving at the end of the year if we grow 60%. Like that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. I remarkable that's no problem. Yeah. Um, so that's the big one. Uh, yeah. Tactically speaking, I think a, another really big portion is I am unwilling anymore to create distance between myself and our customers. Mm-hmm. So, Will, I don't know if you're on Sparktoro's mailing list or anything, but every email you get comes from me, from Rand at Sparktoro, which is my real email address. If you hit reply, I get that email. I answer all of those Every single one, right? I talk to dozens of people every week about how they're using SparkToro, what they're excited about, what they're not. And so I just, I'm just unwilling. Like, I I know I did this at Moz, right? I created a customer service team with a manager and they reported to marketing and that reported to the CMO and that CMO reported to me. Whoo, that's a lot of levels between customer of Moz and founder of Moz. Yeah. Not not going to happen at SparkToro, right? Like all day, every day, I am just talking to customers and figuring out what they want and potential customers, right? And and folks like yeah. yourself and sort of understanding the market, like, oh, okay, p- people think about this this way. They talk about it that way. I, I think a lot of like SaaS business, right? Software business is trying to scale so that you, the founder, don't have to talk to customers. You've got a team to, <laughs> now you can have a whole demo reel of me just. I like. know. It, it's
0: per- <laughs> I think that's perfect. Yeah, in case the first one didn't didn't come through perfectly, we've now got it. What does Rand love- think of uh,
1: creating distance between himself and customers? <laughs> what
0: does he think of the venture capital asset class? <laughs> what does he think of income inequality? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, I didn't want to say anything when you were doing that. I'm gonna. I think that's the one right there. That's the golden. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, I think. Y- y- thank you so much for coming on Road to CEO. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Anything oh, we didn't get to I see? mean, um, w- one of the things we didn't talk about is team building because I,
1: Casey and I haven't built a team yet. But will sometime in the future, I would love to join you and chat about team building. I. I think this is gonna be one of the areas where my previous experience will hopefully help me avoid a bunch of mistakes, but I'll probably make
0: some new ones. So maybe we could have a chat about that. I'd love to hear about that. I'd love to have you back on. Thank you so much. I know people are gonna benefit from, uh, from all the stories and the, the wisdom you've shared. So thanks so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, man. Great to, great to be here. Wish you and your listeners all the very best. Take care.